Welcome to Fort William Baptist Church Audio Sermons. We're so glad you could join with us today. This fall, we have begun a new sermon series called Soteriology. During this series, we will aim to unpack how our God applies salvation to sinful men and women. We are returning to the great doctrines of a sustained and refreshed Christ Church since the days of the Apostles. With the great works of God before us, effectual calling, regeneration, justification, sanctification, and glorification, our hearts will be stirred up to hunger more of the work of God. For more information, please visit our website at www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Open them up to the book of Romans. We're going to be in Romans chapter 6 this morning. So we're going to continue on in our series on salvation, soteriology, and we're going to explore this morning the doctrine of definitive sanctification. And Paul teaches us about this doctrine in Romans chapter 6. So let's listen to the word of God together. Starting in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Almighty Father, we do pray that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word and that your word would have its way with our hearts and our minds now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I just can't stop doing it. I just can't stop doing it. Perhaps you've said that before. Perhaps you've been in a conversation with someone, maybe a friend, and they've said that to you. I just can't stop doing that. Maybe that's where you are this morning, and maybe it sounds a bit, like, a bit like this. I can't stop getting angry. Emotional stress comes your way a bit more than, more than you can handle, and before you know it, you've turned into the, to the Hulk. There was that nice, calm guy, but that emotional stress comes your way, and that guy's transformed into this big, muscle-bound, green monster, and what leaves, what's in your wake, what's behind you? Just a wake of destruction. Or try this on. I can't stop being bitter. 
It doesn't matter what thought avoidance techniques that you used trying to suppress this, this bitterness. The grudges are still there. And whenever your mind has a spare moment, when you're unoccupied with whatever's keeping you busy, all that bitterness just comes right up to the surface. And you're freshly stewing on everything. Or maybe this. I can't stop lusting. I can't stop lusting. Lust works like this powerful magnet. It irresistibly draws you in. All the safeguards you've established, all these hedges and walls that you've built up to fortify yourself from lust doesn't stop the powerful attraction of lust. It rises up in your heart and it it draws you in. And it starts whispering in your ear. I promise you delight. I promise you satisfaction. And so there you are again in the muck and the mire of sin with no delight, with no satisfaction. I can't stop coveting. I can't stop coveting. There's, those, there's enough in the bank. Those, there's enough in the, the fridge or the pantry. Though the house is warm, I am not satisfied with what I have. I want more for myself. And everything you see in here, from what you see on TV, from what you look at on your phone, from the conversations at work, to what you see going on at your neighbor's house across the road, stirs up in you this hunger for more. You want more. And there's this dissatisfaction in your soul with everything that God has given you. I can't stop drinking. I can't stop overeating. I can't stop gossiping. I can't stop worrying. I can't stop being anxious. I can't stop complaining. I can't stop being lazy. I just can't stop sinning. This is a sentence we can personalize in so many different ways, a million different ways. Why? (laughs) Because we're sinners and we're infinitely creative as sinners. But we have to understand something about the sentence, I just can't stop it's a revealing sentence. When we, when we speak these words, when we hear these words being spoken to us, we're learning about the heart, what's going on in there. I can't stop is what? It's the language of exasperation. It's the language of defeat. We say these words when we've been overrun by the enemy so many times that we don't want to have another battle with the enemy. So instead of putting up another fight, we just wave the white flag and give up. We don't want to head back to the battle line. We don't want to meet the enemy face to face again. So we just invite sin to have its way with us. I just can't stop sinning. So what do you say in response? You're saying that in your own mind. I just can't stop. How do you you counsel your own soul? What what truth do you start speaking into your, your soul to counter that? You're with your friend and your friend just speaks those words to you, waving the white flag. What do you say? Where do you go? Would you dare to say something like this? Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Romans chapter 6 verse 12. Would you turn to a passage like this? Put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, Passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Would your instinct be to, be to go here and say this, but, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. Ephesians 5, 3 and 4. I just can't stop sinning. Would you, would you sound the battle cry? 
which you say, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. That's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. So we just heard all these passages of Scripture, Romans, Colossians, Ephesians, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And what are they saying? They all say something in common. They all say something very simple. They all say this. Stop sinning. Paul says it, and he said it just about every letter that he wrote. Jesus says it. And if you read through the New Testament, other apostles say it. You find it everywhere in the Scriptures. But if we're honest with ourselves, this whole line of reasoning makes us feel a bit uncomfortable. So think about the logic like this. You you work up the courage because you're dealing with this matter and you call your friend and you say, we need to meet up and we need to have a chat about what's going on with me. And so you, you meet up and you sit down at the table and you're across from each other. And so you spill your guts to your friend and you just say, I just can't stop blank, whatever it is. And your friend looks at you, looks at you in the eye, clearly and forcefully says to you, with love, stop Sinning. Well, what's going on in your heart when you receive that command from your friend sitting across the table from you? Stop sinning. Well, we might say nice things. Oh, thanks. Yeah, okay. What are we actually thinking in our hearts, in our souls? Well, the response seems flat, doesn't it? It seems out of place. It seems a bit clueless. It seems that response that the friend is giving to us, stop sinning, is going to make the situation worse. Didn't you hear me? I just said, I can't stop sinning. Why are you saying stop sinning to me? You're just making me more hopeless. You're just pushing me down into despair. But here's the thing. This is what the New Testament does again and again and again. You read the New Testament and author after author after author comes to us and says this, stop sinning. Stop sinning. And we have to understand something about this command that the New Testament gives us, stop sinning. Sometimes we get really confused about the commands we find in Scripture. We think that they're this heavy load of of weight, that they're impossible to obey, that they rob us of joy, that they're spoken in in a spirit of condemnation, but that's not the commands of the Scriptures, and we have to start thinking differently about them. We have to understand this. The commands we just read in Romans 6 and Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 and Matthew chapter 5, they're all good news. In fact, they're all God's grace to us. The great question we have to ask in light of all of this is how does this work? How can we say to our souls, stop sinning when all that we want to do is just wave the white flag and give up the battle? How can we go to our friend and look him in the eye with love and say, stop sinning when they're speaking the language of defeat? How does this work? Why does the New Testament bring us to that command? The answer to this question leads us to the doctrine of definitive sanctification. So here's a definition for you. You can write it down, lock it away in your mind. It's this. Definitive sanctification is a one-time, never-to-be-repeated act of God where he removes the sinner from the domain of sin and frees the sinner from the power of sin with the result that the sinner is now called a saint, free to live for the Lord. So do you hear that? 
It's this one time, never to be repeated act of God. It happens at the inception of the Christian life. God does this definitive act. And what is it? He's removing us from the domain of sin. It's this realm. It's this kingdom. He removes us from it. Not only does he remove us from it, but he cuts us off from the power of it. And we get a new name. We're not sinners anymore. We're called saints, and we can live to the Lord. So we can simplify that definition. So God saves sinners. How does God save sinners? God saves sinners by setting us free from sin. We can simplify that even more. God saves sinners by setting us free. That's what the gospel is all about. We get set free. So we have a few things at play so far in the sermon. We've got the statement. We started with it. I can't stop sinning. And we've read the New Testament. And the New Testament says to, uh, says to us what? It says, stop sinning. And then we asked a question trying to connect these two statements. How does this work? I can't stop sinning. Stop sinning. What's the connection here? And when we turn to Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul covers all of these bases. So he wrote this chapter to deal with our statement, I can't stop sinning. Just look at verse 1. Paul says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And then he, after this, if you go down to verse 12, gives his version of the New Testament command, stop sinning. He says to us, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Stop sinning. And importantly for us, in these 14 verses, he connects these two statements. I can't stop, stop. I want to stress this as we begin our work in Romans chapter 6. This chapter is one of the most important passages for the Christian life. If you want to see sin dead in your life, and we can think of those, those sins that really stick close to us that really get into us and are hard to remove, like like greed and and lust and anger. If you want to really see growth, significant growth in your life, you have to master this biblical content because you will not see growth, you will not see sin dead in your life unless you really understand Romans chapter 6. So this morning as we work through Romans chapter 6, We're going to work through it by focusing in on five words. And this will help us understand definitive sanctification. So five simple little words. Sin, Jesus, union, death, and life. Sin, Jesus, union, death, and life. So let's start with the first word, sin. So as we look into our text, sin is the obvious Focus. We've got 14 verses, and this word shows up 10 times, so you can barely make it through a verse or two without hitting this word of sin. And so we have to ask, well, what is Paul talking about when he talks about sin? And so it's important to understand that here in Romans chapter 6, for Paul, sin is not just an action that we perform. So we know the Ten Commandments. When we break one of the Ten Commandments, we sin. For example, if you dishonor your parents, you have sinned. Or if you've told a lie, you have sinned. Or if you've murdered somebody, you have sinned. That's easy to understand. But what Paul does in Romans chapter 6 is he takes this matter of sin to a deeper level. It's not just the actions we perform, but it's also a power. It's also a force. And Paul likes to put it like this. It's a slave master. So just look at how Paul describes this language of sin. Look at verse 6. Paul writes, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 
Now skim down to verse 12. Paul says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Then verse 14, Paul says, For sin will have no dominion over you. So what does sin do according to Paul? It enslaves, it reigns, it compels obedience, it takes dominion. So according to Paul, Paul, the sin is what? Sin is like the slave master, and we can say it is a slave master of the worst sort. And that's helpful imagery just to camp out and think about. So think about a relationship between a slave and his master. A master comes to his slave, and the, the master says to the slave, what? Work. And what does the slave have to do? The slave has to work. The slave can't say, I want to take a vacation day. I've got a few piled up. I want to take a sick day. I don't want to do that. No, the slave has to obey his master. The master comes to the slave and says, I want you to make me dinner. What does the slave have to do? The slave has to to listen. Whatever the master says, that is what the slave has to do. And this is what it means for the slave to be under the power of the master. This is so helpful to think about our lives outside of Jesus. Because outside of Christ, we are all under the power of sin. Sin is our slave master, and we are its slave. And sin reigns over us. It compels us. It has dominion over every single one of the faculties of our beings. And this means something. It means that outside of Jesus, there is no freedom for the sinner. The only thing we can do outside of Jesus is sin. So sinners think they have all of this freedom. I have all of this freedom. I can do whatever I want. But this freedom is an illusion. The sinner is dominated by sin, only doing what sin desires. So what does this mean for us? Well, there's a direct application, and it's this. No one who is under the power of sin can stop sinning. If you are under the power of sin, you cannot stop sinning. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter the job you have. It doesn't matter the education you have received. If you are under the power of sin today, you cannot stop sinning. It doesn't matter if you're dedicated to self-help. You might be really dedicated. You found, you found Jordan Peterson and you read his book, 12 Rules for Life, and you've decided to get responsible making your bed, getting up early in the morning. But here's the truth. If you're under the power of sin, it doesn't matter if you've read that book. You cannot stop sinning. So here's an illustration that might help us out a bit. Can you remember the old arcade game, Whack-A-Mole? I don't know if they still have it, but the game's pretty simple. You go to the arcade, and there's the game, and you get this bat, and moles pop up, and your job is to whack the mole down. That's your job. Well, I think this game shows us just a, a, a facet of what it means to be under the power of sin. So there you are at whack-a-mole. You get the bat and the mole pops up and you whack it down. Another one pops up and you whack it down. But this time, two moles pop up. And you've got to figure out how to try to whack both of them down. And here's the thing. The more you knock down, the more they pop up. And so you quicken the pace. But it doesn't matter. They keep coming. You start to exert more force and more energy. But it doesn't matter. They, they keep coming your way. And the game never stops. You can't beat the game because the moles keep coming. They come faster and faster until you're completely overrun with the moles. And as we think about it, this is how sin works. Sin never stops coming until it defeats you and thoroughly owns you. One sin might pop up and you might try to beat it down. Then another one pops up, and another one, and another one, and another one, and another one, until it defeats you and thoroughly 
owns you. And so that's our first word, sin. Everyone outside of Jesus is dominated by sin, and they cannot put to death any sin. Second word, Jesus. So Paul likes to talk about sin in these 14 verses, 10 times. But he also talks about Jesus a lot in these 14 verses. And what's so interesting is Paul's talking about the gospel here. So if you read through the text, we can grab a hold of the gospel here, the outline of the gospel. Paul talks about death. He talks about burial. He talks about resurrection. He talks about Jesus never being able to to die again. So Paul keeps going back to the gospel. It's there and he's referencing it and he's drawing on it. And we have to ask, well, why does Paul do this? So if you're familiar with the book of Romans, Paul loves the gospel and he's been speaking about the gospel. He explained the gospel to us in chapter 1. And then he explained the gospel to us again in chapter 3. And then he illustrated the gospel to us in chapter 4. And then he talked about the gospel again in chapter 5. And here we are again in chapter 6 and he's going back to the gospel. Why, Paul? Have you gotten forgetful? Are you that uncreative? You just can't talk about anything else? We have to understand for Paul, the gospel is our salvation and it's a manifold salvation. It's a salvation that applies to everything. It's a salvation from guilt. It's a salvation from wrath. And importantly, as we're thinking about sin, it's a salvation from the power and control of sin. So look at verses 9 and 10. Paul writes, We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So catch that language. Paul says Jesus died to sin. We see that. Then he tells us that at one point, death had dominion over Jesus. Those are such interesting phrases. Jesus died to sin. Jesus was under the dominion of death. What does this mean, Paul? Wasn't Jesus sinless? Wasn't he without spot or blemish? What are you talking about, Paul? I think in verses 9 and 10, Paul is saying something like this. He's saying that Jesus in his life and in his ministry was so identified with sinners, so identified, so one with sinners, that he came under the ruling power of sin. Even more, he met sin's greatest weapon, death itself. You can think about David and Goliath, that story. You remember the Philistines, they're opposing Israel and they send forth Goliath, their greatest champion. That's what sin is doing. Sin is like the Philistines and they're going to battle and they're putting forth their greatest fighter, death. That's what Paul's talking about. And we ask, well, what's the result, Paul? Jesus came under the, the domain of sin and death. What was the result, Paul? Well, he tells us good news. He says, Christ has conquered sin. Paul writes, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. So we ask Paul, what happened to the power of sin? Could it contain Jesus? Could it enslave Jesus? Could it overpower Jesus? Paul says, no. Paul says, in Jesus' death, Jesus destroyed sin's power, and in his death, he executed judgment on sin itself. And so we ask, well, what happened to death? Sin has put forward its great fighter, Goliath. What, what happened between Jesus and death? Could sin's greatest tool, greatest weapon, greatest fighter, could death contain him? Could death control him? Could death defeat him? 
And Paul says, no, listen here. This is the good news. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Paul is proclaiming good news. Sin is this great slave master. What has Christ done? He so identified with us. He came under the power of sin. But in his death, in his resurrection, he defeated sin. Dramatically so. That's the word of the gospel according to Paul. So it's clear, Jesus is our conquering Savior. He triumphed over all of his enemies, over sin, over death, over Satan even. And so we ask, well, that's good that Jesus conquered the power of sin and the domain of death. But what does that have to do with me? What does that have to, anything to do with me? And how can, how can I start to share in what happened to Jesus? And this is our third word, union, union. So we've been trained by the Bible. We love to read the Bible. And so when we read the Bible, we, we learn that we need to believe in Jesus. The Bible tells us that Jesus died for our sins, and we need to believe that Jesus died for our sins. The Bible tells us that Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day, and we need to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day. But just as Paul went deeper on sin, he goes deeper on belief and what it means. Paul tells us this. He tells us we're not just believing spectators in the death and resurrection of Jesus. We're not just spectators of the gospel. We see it, we believe it, we acknowledge it, we say it's true. He says there's more to this whole thing. He tells us that we are also believing participants in the death and resurrection of Jesus. We're not just spectators, we're participants in everything that happened to Jesus. Listen to Paul, how he talks about, how he relates the believer to Jesus. Verse 3, Paul says, Do you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That's really interesting language. We know about baptism. We put somebody under the water, we raise them up. But Paul is saying there is a significance to this. You were baptized into Jesus' death. Verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. When you take the time to linger over these verses, you start to see something amazing. The bond forged by the Spirit between the believer and Jesus through baptism is so intimate, so tight, that whatever happened to Jesus has happened to the believer. That's what Paul is saying. You are a participant in Jesus and all that Jesus did. This bond is so tight that you have become one with him. And so this adds profound depth to the gospel story, doesn't it? And Paul wants us to do this. He's saying, Christian, you need to look at the cross. What do you see when you look at the cross? At the cross, you see Jesus dead. At the cross, you, you see Jesus dead. His heart isn't beating. His lungs aren't breathing. His mind isn't thinking anymore. And you know what Paul says to you here? He says this, you have participated in Jesus' death. And Paul says, Christian, you need, to what? you need to go to the burial scene of Jesus. You remember that scene? Jesus is placed in Joseph's tomb is a new tomb newly cut and Jesus is there by himself wrapped in his grave clothes everything is dark and quiet 
Paul says this, believer, you have participated in that burial. Even more, Paul says this, go with the women on Easter morning, go to the tomb, see the stone roll back, see the grave clothes lying empty there. Paul says to you, you've participated in that resurrection. This bond forged between the Spirit, by the Spirit between you and Jesus is is so intimate, so tight, that whatever happened to Jesus has happened to you. Jesus' story has become your story, so much so that Paul can say, "You've, you've died with Jesus, you've been raised with Jesus. And so this has great weight for the Christian life. This brings us to our fourth word, death. And so this union with Jesus, being united to Jesus through faith and by the Spirit, changes everything for us, especially our relationship to sin. So look at verses 6 and 7. Paul starts to, to push this into us. He says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for the one who has died has been set free from sin. So something radical has happened to you if you're in Jesus. And Paul is working hard so that these these believers reading his letter would understand what happened to them in Jesus. And so he uses this graphic imagery. He speaks of death. He speaks of crucifixion. And what he is saying is this, your old self. So think about that man, that woman, before Jesus. That man, that woman, was dominated by sin. Who lived for the slave master's sin and was controlled by sin. Paul is saying this. That old man, that man has been nailed to the cross with Jesus. That life of sin that you once lived in has been executed with Christ. This union is so fundamental to your life that when Jesus died, you died with him. And so the life of sin is done. And there is tremendous good news for you here. What does Paul say? That the body of sin might be brought to nothing. What does this death produce? Our union with Jesus? The body of sin might be brought to nothing. What is Paul saying to you? If you've been united to Jesus, the life of sin is dead. Look at the cross. Jesus is dead. So is sin. There's no more air in the lungs. There's no longer a heartbeat. There's no more thoughts in the head. It's dead. Paul's telling us sin is no longer your slave master. You've been removed once and for all from sin's control and dominating power. All because we've been united to Jesus' death and because we've died with Jesus. This brings us to our last word, our fifth word, life. So we know the gospel story. Death is not the last word. Jesus died and what happened? Three days later, he rose from the dead. And this is our story too. Death with Jesus is not the only thing we experience in the gospel. We also experience resurrection. We get to share in the resurrection life of Jesus. Look at verse 4. Paul is telling us the good news. He says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. We were, we were dominated by sin. We're united to Jesus' death. Now sin is dead, but that's not the only thing that has happened. If we've been united to him in a death, we will also be united to him in his what? In his resurrection. And now we've been removed from that sphere of life into this new sphere of life. The resurrection of Jesus. Who are you if you're in Jesus? You're someone living 
in the resurrection. Though we haven't experienced the fullness of the resurrection, we are living in the resurrection. As Paul says, we too might walk in the newness of life. So that's a lot. We came to Paul, we're looking for answers from Paul about definitive sanctification, about how, how this command, stop sinning, fits with this reality, I just can't stop sinning. And Paul's given us an answer with these five words. He said sin. Everyone outside of Jesus is dominated and owned by sin. And then he told us about Jesus. What did Jesus do? He came under the power of sin and he rose up and he conquered sin by dying and being raised. Third, he tells us about this union. We share in Jesus and all that Jesus accomplished. Christ is our head and we are his body and therefore we've experienced everything that Jesus has experienced. And because of that union, we have died. We have died to sin. Because of that union, we've been raised to new life that we might walk in the day of the resurrection. So what I want to do is go back to how we started we had this conversation. So you worked up this courage to speak with your friend and you wanted to tell your friend your heart. And so you did. You spoke to your friend. You said, I can't stop sinning. And then your friend turned and looked at you and said with love, stop sinning. And we thought about our response and I want to focus in here. What is your friend saying to you? What does he mean by these words to you? Is he dismissing you? After reading Romans 6, I don't, I don't think he is. Is he, is he clueless? Is he off base? Is he just missing everything going on in your life? I, I don't think so. Is he trying to drive you into despair? I can't stop sinning. He's just going to heap more commands on you that you can't keep. Rather, what is he doing? If he's doing it in the spirit of Romans chapter 6, he's pressing the gospel upon you one more time. And in reality, your friend will not only say, stop sinning, but he's going to say to you a lot of other things from Romans chapter 6. He's going to look at you in the eye and say, brother, sister, don't you understand this? I know sin is terrible, that it's cruel, but understand this. Jesus came and he did what? He conquered sin and death. Sin is this great slave master and he defeated it. He's going to talk to you and he's going to say, brother, sister, know this. You belong to this Jesus who conquered sin. When he died to sin, you died to sin. When he rose to life, you rose to life. Oh, hear this. Sin is no longer your master. You have been removed because you've been united to Jesus. That is who you are. He's going to say to you, oh, won't you study the gospel? Won't you look at Jesus' death? Won't you look at Jesus' burial? Won't you look at Jesus' resurrection and say, that is all mine? He's going to say to you, that man, that woman you were before you met Jesus, that person doesn't exist anymore. That person was crucified, nailed to the cross, and executed. He's saying to you, you cannot wave the white flag of surrender anymore. You cannot use this language of defeat. For if you use it, you are denying the gospel. You're denying the fact that Christ died to sin and lives to God. Even more, you are denying this truth that you have been united to Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. What is he saying to you? He is saying, Romans 6, he's saying, how can we who died to sin still live in it? 
He is saying, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He is saying to you, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. So we have the best news today to rejoice in and look at. I can't stop sinning. Paul gives us great news. He says, Jesus has come and he has conquered sin. And if you belong to Jesus, you have been freed from that slave master. And you belong to Jesus because you've died with him and you've been raised with him. And so the news is this, you can stop sinning. That is your life. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we rejoice in this news. It is precious good news, and we need it. We need to hear your gospel again and again. We need your gospel applied to our hearts, for we forget it. We forget who we are in Jesus. And so would you press these truths upon us so that we might recognize ourselves as dead and alive. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.